Hi everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a book podcast where I put the literary focus on Stephen King's underrated and mainstream works. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this newest episode exploring 2007's Blaze. Or perhaps I should say 1973's Blaze, because that's when this little Sproutling was born. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm so excited to talk about this story with you. I think I'm still analyzing it a little bit, so I really don't have a hot, cold, black, white, blanket statement on how Blaze made me feel, mostly because I was just analyzing the heck out of this one. I was really spending a lot of time looking between the lines. So, of course, I enjoyed it. I felt it was a sad, sad story. Really made me think of other tragic King characters. More on that later. But I liked this tale quite a bit. But I even more so loved the exploration of this story's resurrection, what King had to do to bring it to life, as well as the homage, as King puts it, to John Steinbeck's 1937 novel of Mice and Men. So much good stuff in here, guys. This is just my absolute dream for literary analysis. This is just looking at all the puzzle pieces to make this thing a reality, to make it the published copy. So I'm excited to talk about it with all of you. Firstly, we must begin with the fact that Blaze is a Richard Bachman novel. And I must tell you, ladies and gents, I was a little nervous about that, mostly because... I I guess Bachman makes me a little nervous. Granted, I have not read all of Bachman's novels. And when we say Bachman, of course, we're referring to Richard Bachman, the pseudonym that King utilized in the early days of his publishing career, where he wanted to give some life to some of these previously written novels that were just getting rusty and dusty in a drawer. So Richard Bachman was the pen name for these previous works. The ones that we have covered thus far on the podcast are The Long Walk as well as The Running Man. So this would be our third Richard Bachman novel. We have not yet read Roadwork or Rage, although I've heard really good things about Roadwork lately. I've heard a lot of bad things about it too, but I'm really thinking about giving that one a go in the new year. But regarding Bachman, I realized that specifically concerning The Long Walk and The Running Man, we really are getting a very unfiltered king, aren't we? And when we're reading any author, it's kind of important to have radical acceptance, of course, of course. But there's there's a really raw edge to some of these Bachman stories. The Running Man, I didn't have a lot of fun with, guys. Is the premise wonderful? Absolutely. However, it fell flat for me in a couple areas, of which I think I explored in my episode. I hope I did. The Long Walk, of course, is incredibly iconic, that being the very first Stephen King novel to ever be written when he was 18 years old. 
It's compelling and pretty incredible for as bleak as it is, but it's not one that I think I want to go back and analyze just because the subject matter was so heavy. But is it incredible? Absolutely. Is it something that should be discussed and analyzed further? You betcha. So this is only our third Bachman novel, and I was a little nervous because of that raw edge I mentioned. King is a little bit more rated R, if not rated X. There's just really no filter. There is zero concern for offending anyone, for making anybody feel uncomfortable or uneasy. He is just going for it. And he doesn't care about the reader at all. He does not care about our reading experience. That is what I feel the Richard Bachman titles kind of embody. Could be wrong. Haven't read them all yet. It's just a current hypothesis, which can definitely be tweaked and changed as we go further. So once more, I was a little nervous. However, as I started to get a few chapters into Blaze and really sense the sad yet sweet sentiment of the character, I was starting to let my guard down a little bit. I was like, okay, I think it's going to be okay. It's not that bad of a Bachman. So I was very pleased by that, dear ones. Also, before we go any further, I must suggest that everybody get their hands on the 2007 American hardcover. Unknown if the UK edition has all the good stuff in the American version, I should hope it does. This is, of course, the Scribner edition, and there's a wonderful foreword by Steve that really made my heart blossom with how this title was resurrected. As you guys know, I'm a huge fan of Steve's work with hard case crime. We have the first one, The Colorado Kid, in 2005. Then we have Joyland in 2013. And later in 2020, I believe. Yeah, it was either 2020 or 2021. I'm such a huge fan. I love all three of those stories so, so much. But I was incredibly pleased reading the author forward that Steve got the idea to resurrect Blaze from his participation with Hard Case Grime and writing The Colorado Kid. Oh my goodness, everyone. If you haven't read The Colorado Kid, please do so. And then right after The Colorado Kid, you should read From a Buick Gate. But then when you're done with those, come back here and let's talk about Blaze because King says that that experience writing The Colorado Kid, working with the hard case crime publishers, and just having a really grand time with that very antique way of fiction, he was thinking about Blaze. Blaze, of course, was written in 1973. So although it was published in 2007, this little baby was sprouted in 1973, shortly before Miss Carrie White was given to the world. So according to King, he had about 50 pages composed and then suddenly it just got boxed up and lost and ended up at the Fogler Library inside the University of Maine and his blessed assistants found the original copy for him and he started to bring this thing to life. He started to spend some time with Blaze and continue to compose his story and I'm so glad he did guys this is just so much fun to explore and also it's it's a little bit of a sad one for sure it is one that has a lot of character power there's just oh there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of stuff there are a lot of strong choices made 
There are some areas that I wish different choices could be made, but overall, this thing is such an enjoyable read. I'm really proud of this Bachman, that it is something that has a lot of heart. And this is one of those novels that I really feel should be read by more constant readers. This one definitely has a lot of heart, a lot of really memorable scenes, and Blaze, I think, is pretty unforgettable. So we're going to talk more about that in our strength section of the episode, but now would be about the time where I outline how this episode is going to play out. We, of course, are going to immediately dive into strengths right away. We always start with the positive in our fiction workshops. So we're going to take a look at what I found really compelling really well done, very interesting, and we must, must, must talk about John Steinbeck's novel of Mice and Men. In the author forward, Steve says that this story is a direct homage to Of Mice and Men. However, I actually think that King improved the story a little bit. More on that in a few. But we're going to talk about strengths next. We will segue into some characters. This is a shorter story. It's only about 260 pages, but there are a few characters I would like to mention your way. Lastly, we're going to look at some criticisms. I do have more than I thought I would this time, guys. I do have some areas I'd like to bring to the attention of the court and we'll see what we think they're very soft of course it's more like i think it would have been stronger if so we definitely have a few criticisms and then we will round out blaze so before we head that way once more i just have to extend how important it is that you get your hands on the 2007 american hardcover or the uk edition but i suggest this because i found some treasure dear ones oh my goodness so not only do we have a truly wonderful author forward from king to kick off this story and get us prepared for just how long this thing has been in the stew pot and then at the very end once i got to page 260 there's this strange peculiar little story attached called memory and ladies and gentlemen let me tell you just how much my heart burst when i read the following footnote at the bottom of this little 15 pager at the back of blaze where it says stephen king's short story memory appeared in volume 7 number 4 of tin house the summer 2006 issue it is the seed from which has grown a much longer tale, Duma Key, which Scribner will publish in early 2008. <gasps> oh my goodness, you guys! I truly let out an audible scream. Yes, everyone, we get 15 early pages of one of my all-time favorite King novels, Duma Key. It has definitely been tweaked and edited for sure, but oh my god, I absolutely relished every sentence of this early Duma key. The voice of Edgar Fremantle is a little more cheeky, if I'm interpreting it correctly. I remember the novel version coming across a bit more morose. However, I might need to spend some more time on that. It could be the exact identical text and I'm just imagining things. Very well could be. But oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, the early seedlings of Duma key. I, I, my brain exploded. The 2007 edition has this, and it also has a, a wonderful summary on the back, of which I'm going to read to you now. At 6'7 and just under 300 pounds, 
Clay Blaisdell is one big mother, but his capers were just small time until he met George Rackley. George introduced him to a hundred cons and one big idea, kidnapping the child of rich parents. The Gerards are filthy rich, and the last twig on the family tree could be worth millions. There's only one problem. By the time the deal goes down, the brains of the partnership is dead. Or is he? Now Blaze is running into the teeth of a howling storm and the cops are closing in. He's got a baby as a hostage, and the crime of the century just turned into a race against time in the white hell of the Maine woods. Oh, I love that. So good, so rich and poetic and full of intrigue and mystery to kick off this very lovely story, guys. This is a wonderful Bachman tale to pick apart and explore, and I can't wait to do it with all of you. Let's start the show. everyone. Let's begin our Blaze coverage by first unpacking the strengths within this Bachman novel. I have three of them I'd like to share with you, and our first one is going to examine tragic characters. Oh my goodness, everyone. As you know, King has a few quite notable tragic characters in the universe. Before I mention a few I have in mind, I just want to highlight how much Clayton Blaisdell, or Blaze, is a heartbreaker, guys. But to flash back to English class for just a moment, tragic characters, as a reminder, are those individuals that have no good breaks, guys. Nothing goes well for them. There is no sunny, happy ending for these folk. They exist to bring the pain. They exist to crush the reader, right? Tragic characters like we have within Greek tragedies, Shakespearean tragedies, are there to pull that cathartic experience out of us, right? To pull that emotional response to the art out of the viewer. And Blaze is a great tragic character, guys. He really is very strong. What we learn about Blaze just simply crushes the soul. So firstly, we have a young whose mother is tragically killed when he's three years old. He has a horrific, terrifying, terrible drunk of a father who throws Blaze downstairs multiple times. 
I believe at the time Blaze was maybe five or six years old, he was developing, learning, finding he had an affinity for certain subjects, and then all of a sudden he is brain damaged, irrevocably altered for the rest of his life. And so because of that, the reader was able to see how much promise and what a healthy beginning this individual did have, and now... He has no parents, he's in the foster care system, he spends his youth in a terrible boy's home called Hetton House, where there's a lot of cruelty from the headmaster. You know, the tragedy just keeps piling on. The rest of Blaze's life is, of course, him falling in with the wrong crowd. This leads him into a life of crime, which, of course, causes Blaze to have a short prison stint and then, unfortunately, an untimely death. Super duper tragic. There is very little light or brevity in this story, guys, so kind of keep in mind if you're in a delicate place, reading Blaze is supposed to smash you. It really is supposed to bring the pain, and it's successful. It is successful because of that. As I mentioned earlier, there are a few tragic king characters I'd like to remind you about in case they haven't been mentioned as a tragic character, and you could maybe mull that over. So the one that immediately comes to mind is, of course, Johnny Smith from The Dead Zone. If I'm remembering correctly, that's a 19... that's a 70s king. Maybe 79, I think, 1980. My dates are a little fudgy. But Johnny Smith, oh my goodness, guys. To this day, Johnny's date with Sarah at the beginning of that novel is one of my favorite romantic king moments. It's just magical. Johnny is young and alive and having fun, and all of that ends after a tragic car accident puts him in a coma for seven years. He comes out of it with immense personal handicaps, abilities he didn't ask for, and the tragedy continues after that until the very end where his fate is just the worst it can be. Johnny Smith is a tremendous tragic character that really makes The Dead Zone a standout King novel. If you haven't read it, or if it's been a while, oh, definitely give it some of your time. But the next tragic character that I've spoken a little bit about, maybe a lot, maybe too much, depending on some listeners, Scott Landon from Lisey's Story. So I know not a lot of folks have read this one because it is nutballs. It is a crazy book, as I've mentioned many times on the podcast previously. But Scott Landon is someone who was born to an extremely mentally unstable father. There was a lot of physical, emotional, verbal abuse in the home, physical violence. He was just brought up in an absolute hellscape for a young child to grow up in. This, of course, really warps Scott's reality to where his talent for writing allows him to escape the quite literal monsters from this reality he's attached to called Booyah Moon. It's this magical, terrifying place that he used as a refuge back in the day, but it definitely is a double-edged sword. It's a really fascinating text, but the character of Scott Landon is extremely tragic, everyone. I think his marriage to Lisi is one of the only lighthearted moments in his life, and even then it's just mired with controversy and difficulty because he is such a tormented individual. So Scott Landon is somebody I would like to spend some more time on. When we talk about Tragic King characters, I know there are many more in the King universe that I haven't mentioned. If my memory serves me well, jumping back to 1986 is it. 
I kind of think, I mean, all of the Losers Club are tragic characters in their own right, of course. They're just tormented and brutalized by Pennywise, but I remember Stan Uris being very, very tragic. Granted, we don't really know if Stan had a lot of positivity in his adult years. I think he was married. I think he had children. But the kind of fear that Pennywise put forth in this individual absolutely ruined his life. When Mike calls the Losers Club to come back to Derry, it's been 27 years, Stan's the only one to take his own life. And that kind of fear and that kind of helplessness and shock and trauma and terror that's deep, guys. And so Stan, for me, was always kind of a tragic character. I know there are several more in the King universe, most definitely. And I'd like to spend some more time sort of rooting them all out in the future. But when we talk about tragic King characters, I think Blaze is number one, guys. I absolutely feel Blaze is at the top of this list because this poor, sweet soul had no one who advocated for him in a positive light. Later on in his adulthood, he meets George Rackley. We're going to talk more about him in the next section. George is a selfish individual, so he uses Blaze for his own personal gains. And that can, to a desperate person, look like love and acceptance. It's really not. So really, when we look at the character of Blaze, this precious soul got dealt every punch in the gut and hard knock that life could deal out and he received them in spades there is very little light joy happiness encouragement positivity there's really none of that for the character of blaze and it's hard guys it's really hard to read but it's also powerful it's powerful in its tragedy it's powerful in creating a story where someone suffers but keeps getting up due to a resilience we don't quite understand so there's a lot of fascinating stuff here guys but i think blaze might be one of the most significant and underrated tragic king characters and i'm really hoping that we can get some more spotlight on that when we talk about tragic characters in future king discussions so a huge strength for the novel is just really making blaze do all the suffering. He is very, very similar to another tragic character that I forgot to mention, Mr. John Coffey. Really, really similar to him in stature. I don't think that John Coffey had an intellectual handicap. I think that he was just a simple-minded person. He is, of course, a miracle of nature, so probably much more connected to earth and animals and the natural flow of day to day very much like a forest child whereas blaze had all of his potential ripped away by a brain injury but his physical strength very much a biblical allusion to the old testament character of samson if you guys went to sunday school back in the day samson was the big strong guy with the long hair he had a god-given gift of strength which granted him immense favor it also put a huge target on his back if anybody wants a really juicy dark sort of sexy and effed up bible story go to the book of judges and read about samson you'll thank me it's intense but samson of course immense strength, high favor. We have that in the character of Blaze. Blaze is similar to John Coffey. I think he's the same height, 6'7", burly, strong, masculine, quiet. He attracts people. And unfortunately, it's the wrong kind of people. And due to his limitations, he's just set up to fail in every way, guys. So the strength of 
Blaze is a tragic character is immense, so keep your eyes on it when you open up Blaze. The hugest of the huge is what King discusses in the author foreword at the beginning of Blaze, and that this story is an homage to John Steinbeck's 1937 novel of Mice and Men. So we do have to jump back in time to American English class. If you guys went to high school in the United States, chances are you read Of Mice and Men. If you didn't, you most likely read a different John Steinbeck novel. When I was 16, I spent a miserable summer with the Joad family from The Grapes of Wrath. God, that sucked. Ugh. (laughs) So it's a powerful book, it is, but The Grapes of Wrath is a long one about the Joad family from Oklahoma. It's the Dust Bowl after the Great Depression. They migrate to California to become farm workers. Basically, if you don't know Steinbeck, he is somebody who writes about marginalized, disenfranchised, and exploited peoples. A very important American writer, but he's definitely a fan of long tangents. If anybody read The Grapes of Wrath, there's an entire chapter where a turtle is crossing the road. I kid you not, and it's probably like 15 pages of a turtle crossing the street. So... (laughs) Personally, if you guys haven't read John Steinbeck, I recommend skipping Grapes of Wrath, skipping Of Mice and Men, and going to East of Eden. That one's sexy. That one has a tremendous family drama at its core and a wonderful biblical illusion tale of Cain and Abel. So, so good, guys. If I were to recommend a Steinbeck novel to my students, which I actually think I have before, East of Eden seems to fare far better than the other two. However, back on track, we're talking about Of Mice and Men. Of Mice and Men is a shorter one, which is why it's very popular in high schools. There's a lot of really strong themes, but the most memorable part of that book are the two characters, George Milton, I believe, I think it's George Milton, George and Lenny Small. Lenny, of course, is a very strong individual, tall, big, but he has an intellectual handicap. He really struggles with the day-to-day, therefore George Milton is somebody who kind of takes care of him. George dreams of owning a piece of land, farming it, living for himself, not having to work for a terrible boss. Lots of strong themes about the American dream in there. But what's kind of dark in Steinbeck's tale is how Lenny's strength, this immensely large man, it betrays him. Anytime he gets a little too close to things he likes, Lenny likes soft things, particularly rabbits. Anything that has a soft texture, he wants to get close to, and he wants to touch it, and his strength betrays him, and he ends up breaking its neck. This happens with rabbits, this happens with Curly's wife, sorry for the spoiler, but his strength betrays him and it makes him a liability and it's, gosh, the characters of Of Mice and Men is why people remember that book and it's why it's studied in schools. George and Lenny represent the disenfranchised, the exploited, and the tragic characters in literature that live forever because they hoped so greatly and dreamed and felt all the pain that the world brought upon them and were kind of martyred because of it. So fascinating novel. It's pretty short if you want to brush up on your Steinbeck 
and read of Mice and Men, it is recommended because when you read Blaze, guys, you really see that King was channeling that novel, which I love, love, love when King does that because in my heart, King is forever an English teacher and he realizes that these texts are important for a reason. We need to continue exploring them, discussing them, but King actually improves Steinbeck's story a little bit. Steinbeck's original text is its dark, guys. There's a lot of sad stuff in there. And King was able to put his own cool spin on it that allows it to hit a little different, as the kids say. For example, Lenny is such a liability to the character of George. George is the gentle hardworking one. He is still uneducated, but he's just a stressed out guy. He's got to take care of Lenny, but he can't be all places at once. He's just trying to make it through the day. So what we have with Blaze is how Blaze is, of course, paralleling Lenny Small. Blaze is huge, right? But he's his intellectual handicap has come from his physical abuse and his brain damage injury. So he doesn't have the same sort of issues that Lenny does where his strength betrays him. What kind of betrays Blaze is his, maybe his own grip on reality. The character of George, rather than being the sweet sort of caretaker angel that George Milton is in Steinbeck's novel, George Rackley is a straight up criminal, guys. There's a few little inklings of morality in there. He is similar to George Milton, who wants to support the underdog and somebody who's being exploited by rich people. George Rackley is a con man who rips off rich people happily. He feels it's his mission in life to balance the scales a little bit. And anytime he's reading a newspaper where rich people are exploiting the poor, he just loses it. But at the end of the day, George Rackley in Blaze is a crook. He drags Blaze into this life of crime, really puts Blaze in bad situations. Blaze goes to prison for a little while and unfortunately exits the novel way too soon because of this life of crime George brought him into. What's interesting in this story is that George is not alive in this novel, only through flashbacks. In the present day segment of the story, George is dead and Blaze is trying to make do with the reality he's faced with alone, so he keeps hearing George's voice. We don't know if it's the fact that Blaze has lost the plot entirely, like he's just gone nuts, which is probable, or the crushing loneliness is why he is sort of echoing George in his own mind or the voice of George. I don't think there's a physical ghost entity that paranormal turn of this story might have taken. I don't think it's that. I think King is really highlighting one of the strongest themes in Of Mice and Men, and that's loneliness. All of those characters are incredibly alone, and they're made so by, of course, the economic conditions that separate them, but also man's inhumanity to man. They're so ugly to each other. People are so terrible to one another inside of Steinbeck's novel. And so inside of Blaze, Blaze faces that same loneliness. 
The life of crime has isolated him, quite literally. He's in a rural main cabin. The crime that he has committed against the Gerard family has further isolated him, and now he doesn't have his friend George by his side to tell him what to do to advise him. He's really, really, really struggling. So there is loneliness, there is definitely the potential hinting of mental illness for sure, because George's voice is with him for a long time, like we're definitely having a conversation with George all the time. So there is that, but I really like some of the changes that King made two of Mice and Men in his own story, really sort of flipping the script in a few areas but carrying over the powerful themes that Steinbeck birthed in the original novel. So it's really fascinating, guys. I love, love, love when King includes classic literature into his novels. If you guys didn't know, even though I'm not a huge fan of this novel, the 1998, I believe, Bag of Bones is completely riffing on one of the greatest gothic novels of all time, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And for all of my revival fans out there, the entire end of that book is, of course, channeling Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We have it all over the place, guys. We have Of Mice and Men in Blaze. We have many more moments where King is, of course, channeling classic stories and of course 2022's fairy tale i can't wait to read it we've got a bunch of classic stuff in there i'm told so it's just all over king's work and it's something that i definitely like to explore in these episodes and hopefully more in the future but the homage to of mice and men is strong prominent and if you would like to really really nerd out i highly recommend you read of mice and men spend some time with it it's a short one you can listen to it on audiobook probably less than two hours judging by the page length and then jump right into blaze and see what you spot see what you think my last category for the strengths I really, really enjoyed in Blaze is our narrative structure. It's super good, guys. As I mentioned earlier, this is a short one. This is under 300 pages. And so the way that King sets up our structure is really wise. This is a non-linear tale. So we begin present day with Blaze George Rackley is dead. He is really struggling for what the next move should be. And then we jump back in time to learn about this sweet person named Clayton Blaisdell. We have a third-person omniscient narrator, and the story operates in present-day flashback, present-day flashback, present-day flashback. So that's our map throughout the story, and it's really successful, guys. I really like the way that King set the stage. I'm happy it's not really taking place like a David Copperfield where we follow Blaze's life from birth to present. It really works. The main meat of the story is, of course, the crime that Blaze commits against the Gerard family. They're extremely wealthy, and George's last request slash demand was that Blaze kidnap their little baby Joe for ransom money. So the beginning of this novel is Blaze preparing to do so, him carrying it out. So all of our present day moments with Blaze resort around the crime of the kidnapping. In between those moments, we're flashing back to Blaze's childhood, his terrible childhood, it's awful, his time with foster parents, Hetton House, friends, adolescence, teenagehood, and then eventually meeting George and succumbing to a life of crime. I am uncertain 
how many years we actually get with Blaze. I may have missed this in the text, forgive me, but I believe Blaze is very, very young when he exits the novel. I think he most likely might be mid to late 20s. I could be wrong there, but yeah, this guy, I don't know about burning bright, but he burns out way sooner than he should have, which really exacerbates the tragic character nature of Clayton Blaisdell, also known as Blaze. But the structure of this really highlights all the strengths we've mentioned thus far, guys. I think it's really well done. I love the third person. I'm kind of glad it's not first person. It works. I like looking at the world from the omniscient point of view. It really allows me to visualize things in a greater way. It's strong. It's working, guys. So to recap the strengths of Blaze, we have tragic characters. I think Blaze should be one of the best ones, one of the top ones we mention. Second, the homage to Of Mice and Men. Incredibly strong, yet nice original twists input. I'm really happy with it. Definitely read it if you haven't. And lastly, our narrative structure. Really smart choices made with the POV and the present day flashback switches. So, so strong. All right, everyone, let's head into our next section where we will examine the characters of Blaze. I'll see you there. Gather around, boys and girls, and let's take a deeper look at the characters within Blaze. So firstly, we're going to start off with George Rackley. We talked a lot about Blaze in our last section and what a tragic character he is, but George Rackley, oh my goodness, this guy is kind of fascinating. I do love the complexity that King brings to these characters, specifically George Rackley. George is, of course, paralleling the George from Of Mice and Men, who was a very kind individual, soft-spoken, hardworking, just trying to take care of Lenny and keep his head down, trying to achieve his dream, get some land, all that good stuff. Well, King introduces us to the exact opposite of that. We have a man who was raised on the streets for the most part. I believe his young sister was a prostitute. This guy has gone to the school of hard knocks and learned very quickly that you gotta con people to survive. You gotta steal to eat, and you gotta play tricks and games on rich people to get ahead. And that's what George has done his entire life. And when he meets Blaze, he sees him as someone who could help him get what he wants. Blaze, of course, is a very large individual, so as a crime boss, you're gonna think muscle. I need somebody to punch people in the face when they owe me money. I need somebody who I can manipulate, twist around my thumb to do my bidding. So that's what George Rackley sees when he observes Blaze. But what's interesting is even though George is a con man and gets Blaze into a lot of scrapes, he is someone who cares, and I put that in quotes, to the the best of his ability, he observes that 
Blaze is somebody who's had a lot of bad things happen to him, and I think he's sympathetic to that, where he feels, I won't be as mean as everybody else has been to this guy. I'm still going to use him to get what I want, to get what I need, but I'm not going to be as cruel, perhaps, as maybe others have been to him throughout his life. So it's interesting. He's kind of positive. He's kind of an anti-hero, but mostly a villain, because deep down, he is unkind to Blaze. He uses him, and he's very cruel in the way he speaks to him. He's very insulting. He puts him in situations where Blaze can get in a lot of trouble all the time. Like, there's never not been a time where he wants good and positive things for him. We have a couple glimmers throughout the text, but they're very short-lived. So George is kind of fascinating, and he's really the only person that has spent a significant amount of years with Blaze. So when George is no longer physically in the story, Blaze continues to talk to him in his head and observe or try to imagine what George would have said, what George would have encouraged him to do because he really can't do it by himself. He was so codependent on George's strength, on George's decisions, on George's way of going about things that when George dies, he really doesn't know what to do. He's so powerless. He wasn't set up to be independent. He was set up to follow George and do what George says. So George is a really interesting character to observe in this story, guys. There are times when I hate him and I think he's a super jerk and totally abusing Blaze and putting him into terrible situations. And there are other times where you do get to see, okay, maybe he does have a heart. Maybe he does care about Blaze or cares about him the way an employer will care about an employee who makes them money and that's about it that kind of thing. Kind of interesting. So the second character I want to tell you about is John Chelsman. So John Chelsman is a character from Blaze's youth and childhood. He was, I believe the text indicated, sort of a frail individual, kind of short, lanky. He is once more fodder for bullies, bless him. And Blaze, of course, is picked on a lot, but nobody really messes with him because of his size. Blaze really has that John Coffey kind of largeness to him where he is just massive. He is so big and masculine, strong. He has traps, he has guns, he has height, he has girth. He is just a massive individual with such a soft way of looking at the world due to his intellectual handicap and his previous injuries. And so John Chelsman sort of finds a way to chat with Blaze and say, hey, let's make a deal. I'll help you with homework if you can keep the bullies off me. And they kind of come to each other's aid in that way, and they're really good friends. Unfortunately, as that is the main theme of this story, misfortune, poor sweet John Chelsman isn't in the story for very long and passes away at a very young age. More on that in a little bit. I'm actually going to read a really great scene, one of my favorite parts of this book. We're going to explore that here in just a few minutes, but John Chelsman, I wish there was more of him. I'm really happy for the time he spent with Blaze because I think he was the only source of joy in Blaze's youth, so I'm really glad he existed in the novel. But of course, King rips him out of the story and rips him out of our hearts quite violently as the theme of tragedy continues in Blaze's story. This next character is an itty-bitty little guy, but he's so significant. That is six-month-old Joe Girard. The main con in present day found within this novel 
the one that Blaze engages in because George told him to, George ordered that this was the last con they were gonna do, is the kidnapping of Joe Girard. The Girards are very wealthy, and throughout the story, George Rackley is really anti-rich people. He's got a kind of chip on his shoulder about people who are inherently wealthy and how they exploit the working class, so that's a huge part of George's character throughout the story. It's really interesting. So baby Joe Girard is featured quite prominently once Blaze actually is successful with the kidnapping. He is, of course, a little baby who cries and poops and sleeps and eats, but what's fascinating is the way Blaze cares for him and stares at him, wants to learn about him, wants to protect him, feels a closeness to him. There's that maternal softness that's there. And as I mentioned in the last story, how King kind of improves of Mice and Men, unfortunately, Lenny Small, anytime he was remotely close to anything delicate, such as a rabbit, such as Carly's wife, he got too aggressive or his strength just betrayed him and he ended up breaking its neck. He really could not be trusted with his own strength, but Blaze is not like that. Blaze is gentle, he is soft, he is delicate, he is able to soothe and care for baby Joe, and it's really fascinating to see this big, hulking lunk of a guy with this little itty-bitty, precious little fragile package, this little baby guy. Unfortunately, little baby Joe does get his scrapes and bruises because of the nature of Blaze trying to outrun the police, he does get some wounds on him, which is really hard as the reader because babies are oh so soft and fragile. There are times when Joe like falls off of the table and oh my goodness, he gets a fever, he gets sick. Oh my gosh, it's intense for anybody who's got a maternal instinct firing. But Joe is very significant to the character of Blaze as the reader gets to observe Blaze's gentleness, his parental instinct, and a wonderful part of the story that of course is never revealed to Blaze, it's dramatic irony only the audience knows, is Blaze does have a sexual experience as a teenager with a girl from one of the group homes they're all paired up with to gather fruit for the summer. Another Steinbeck moment. Lots of fruit picking in Steinbeck novels. But he has a sexual experience with a girl named Anne. She does get pregnant. She gives birth to a boy who's put up for adoption, and that boy ends up becoming a huge football star. He is liked and loved and smart, and Blaze's legacy, of course, he never knows about it. He never knows about the son, but the reader does. So when we see Blaze with Joe, it's quite special. It's, it's really precious, and Joe is a significant part to his life. It might be one of the only tender adult moments that Blaze has ever had in his capacity for understanding the world around him and how life works and he's never held or taken care of a baby before and suddenly little Joe is relying on him for survival. Very powerful guys, really really interesting to observe so little baby Joe Gerard is worth mentioning. The last character I want to mention is Mr. Blue Note, Ugh, another heart smasher. When Blaze is a teenager, adolescent through teenage years, he lives at Hetton House. Hetton House is a boy's home, there's a terrible headmaster, it's just a terrible place. 
that the foster care system allowed for him to go to. It's in rural Maine. And so for the summer, all the boys in Hetton House join up with a lot of juvie kids, I guess. These are the teenagers with records. And they're at Mr. Blue Note's Blueberry Farms. And they're going to pick fruit all summer. And I don't think they get a wage, but they get room and board. And Mr. Blue Note is extremely kind and reasonable. And when he sees Blaze, he really sees an amazing individual. Blaze is a hard worker. He keeps his head down. He's quiet. He's not a troublemaker. He just likes to work hard. He also learns how to drive. He's extremely helpful on the farm. And when everybody is heading back to their respective locations at the end of summer, Mr. Blue Note wants Blaze to stay on. He really sees a lot of talent and sweetness and goodness in Blaze, and he wants to nurture it. He wants to help this guy out. What happens, of course? Tragedy, everybody. That's what happens. Is Mr. Blue Note allowed to survive and take care of Blaze? You guessed right. No, he is not. (laughs) Terrible. But Mr. Blue Note was just a precious character for a short time. And once more, King rips our hearts out and allows Mr. Blue Note to have a terrible heart attack right as the end of summer was upon them. And Blaze, of course, was unable to stay on and have a pleasant rest of his youth into adulthood and maybe would have changed the entire course of his life. I doubt he would have met George Rackley if he was able to stay at Mr. Blue Note's farm. So, oh, the pain, everybody, the pain. Let's sort of recap all of our characters. George Rackley, extremely fascinating. A definite 180 take on the George Milton from Of Mice and Men. Next, we have a friend of Blaze in his youth, John Chelsman, sweet little baby guy who was very frail, who was very sweet to Blaze and not in the story for as long as I wanted him to be, that's for sure. Next, we have baby Joe Gerard, little six-month-old squalling little guy who Blaze kidnaps, takes care of, protects, feeds, clothes, bathes, does all the things like a parent would do. It's fascinating. Granted, it all goes awry, as you can imagine, but the moments where Blaze is with Joe are really, really interesting and very powerful. And lastly, Mr. Blue Note. He was so nice, and I really wish fate would have allowed him to stay in the story longer because Blaze, the rest of his life would have been so, so different. So again, once more, highlighting the strength of the tragic character that is Blaze. Tragic with a capital T, ladies and gentlemen. Before we head out of our character section, I did want to read one of my favorite scenes. This is one of the positive moments we get in this very sad novel. This is when John Chelsman and Blaze come across some incredible luck. They find a wad of cash at the movie theater and decide to go to Boston and have an amazing time. So what do two teenage boys do when they go to Boston? They go to a Red Sox game and they go to a steakhouse. So this is one of the scenes of them having a really good time in Boston. I love this part in the book so, so much. This is beginning at the top of page 116 in the American hardcover. The big man leaned forward with his fingers splayed on the bar. His face had been cruelly handled by the ears, but it wasn't cruel. I believe you, he said. You got too much hay in your hair to be liars. But that cop down there? Boys, I could sick him on you like a dog on a rat. You'd be cell-bound while him and me was splitting that money. I'd bust you one, Blaze said. That's our money. Me and Johnny found it. Look, we've been in that place, and it's a bad place to be in. 
A guy like you, maybe you think you know stuff, but... Aw, never mind. We earned it. You're going to be a bruiser when you get your full growth, the big man said, almost to himself. Then he looked at John. Your friend here? He's a few tools short of a full box. You know that, right? John had recovered himself. He didn't say anything, only returned the big man's gaze steadily. You take care of him, the big man said, and he smiled suddenly. Bring him back here when he gets his full growth. I want to see what he looks like then. John didn't smile back, looked more solemn than ever, in fact, but Blaze did. He understood it was all right. The big man produced the $20 bill. It seemed to come from nowhere and shoved it at John. These stakes are on the house, boys. You take that and go to the baseball tomorrow. If you ain't had your pockets picked by then. We went today, John said. Was it good? The big man asked. And now John did smile. It was the greatest thing I ever saw. Yeah, the big man said. Sure it was. Watch out for your buddy. I will, because buddies stick together. I know it. The big man brought the steaks and Caesar salads and new peas and huge mounds of string fries and huge glasses of milk. For dessert, he brought them wedges of cherry pie with scoops of vanilla ice cream melting on top. At first, they ate slowly. Then Detective Monaghan of Boston's finest left, without paying nothing so far as Blaze could see, and they both pitched too. Blaze had two pieces of pie and three glasses of milk, and the third time the big guy refilled Blaze's glass, he laughed out loud. When they left, the neon signs in the street were coming on. You go to the Y, the big man said before they did. Do it right away. City's no place for a couple of kids to be wandering around at night. Yes, sir, John said. I already called and fixed it. The big man smiled. You're all right, kid. You're pretty good. Keep the bear close and walk behind him if anyone comes up and tries to brace you, especially kids wearing colors, you know, gang jackets. Yes, sir. Take care of each other. That was his final word on it. The next day, they rode the subways until the novelty wore off, and then they went to the movies, and then they went to the ball game again. It was late when they got out, almost 11, and someone picked Blaze's pocket, but Blaze had put his share of their money in his underwear the way Johnny told him to, and the pickpocket got a handful of nothing. Blaze never saw what he looked like, just a narrow back weaving its way into the crowds exiting through gate A. They stayed two more days and saw more movies and one play that Blaze didn't understand, although Johnny liked it. They sat in something called the Lodge that was five times as high as the balcony at the Nordica. They went into a department store photo booth and had their pictures made, some of Blaze, some of Johnny, some of them both together. In the ones together, they were laughing. They rode the subways some more until Johnny got train sick and threw up on his sneakers. Then a Negro man came over and shouted at them about the end of the world. He seemed to be saying it was their fault, but Blaze couldn't tell for sure. Johnny said the guy was crazy. Johnny said there were a lot of crazy people in the city. They breed here like fleas, Johnny said. They still had some money left, and it was Johnny who suggested the final touch. They took a greyhound back to Portland, then spent the rest of their dividend on a taxi. John fanned the remaining bills in front of the startled driver, almost $50 worth of crumpled ones and fives, some smelling fragrantly of Clayton Blaisdell Jr.'s underpants, and told him they wanted to go to Hetton House in Cumberland. The cabbie dropped his flag, and at five minutes past two on a sunny late summer afternoon, they pulled up at the gate. John Cheltsman took half a dozen steps up the drive toward the brooding brick pile and fainted dead away. He had rheumatic fever. He was dead two years later. Oh, 
Even the good parts are tinged with the sad. But I love that punchy chapter end that is quintessential King, as you constant readers know. If you knew King readers out there, it's a thing. Prepare yourself. But I love it. The theme of sadness is just woven into every chapter, unfortunately. So this is a cathartic one, everybody. If you are in the mood to cry it out, if you need to feel sad, Blaze is the story to do that. Let's head into our last section where we're going to talk about a few criticisms I have, a few areas of the text I wish would have been changed, and then we'll conclude our coverage of Blaze. I'll see you in the next section. friends of blaze let's take a look at the criticisms i have a couple things i want to talk about in terms of just tiny tiny things i wish king would have done differently the biggest one everyone the biggest one of the two i have for you is that king mentions in the foreword that he originally wrote blaze as a post-World War II narrative, meaning Blaze would be growing up in the 50s. But then when he resurrected the manuscript, I've seen that it was 50 pages long, I've seen it was 100 pages long, I've heard it was 173 pages, whatever the original amount was, he decided to omit any declarative timeline. It's sort of present day, but there is no indication of present day. I had a real problem with this, guys, because it reads like it's in the 50s. There are some really key elements here that are completely indicative to the 1950s. I know that there was editing done on this book, but some of the characters still have echoes of he lost his son in Korea. You know, that was in 1953. This is just, it is a 50s novel. So when you start reading Blaze, I think it's beneficial to have it in your mind that Blaze is growing up in the 1950s because King omitted all of that and I really feel the story suffers for it. One of the biggest scenes where this is problematic is when Blaze goes to the baby store to buy a crap ton of stuff to take care of Joe. Oh my gosh, guys, he buys the store out, right? He buys everything, clothes, high chair, baby food, diapers, changing table, like he builds a crib, he buys hundreds of, modern day, it would have been thousands of dollars, maybe even $10,000. Like, oh my gosh, the amount of things that Blaze buys is shocking. It's a really fun scene, but at the end, when Blaze is paying the cashier, the text nonchalantly says, Blaze handed her the money. And it's like, what? Okay, he handed her a wad of cash, and it was from the 50s because that's all they had, and Blaze is a thief, so he's using his reserves from his cons with George, and it's like, I just wish King would have went with the original idea to make Blaze a post-World War II story. It works, guys. If you imagine Blaze in the 50s, it's so strong. It just really, really works. Without it, it's kind of floating in the ether of time. There's no mention of contemporary music, which we know King loves to do. There's very little mention of really anything that grounds our setting. 
other than they're in rural Portland, Maine. But when I imagine Hetton House, when I imagine that trip to Boston, I, I want to feel that grounding in the setting, I do. I want to know when we are. When I grade my students' fiction drafts, that's one of the typical recommendations for their second draft that I always say. Allow the reader to know when and where we are. Firmly plant them. I feel King doesn't do that so well in this novel. Or rather, Bachman just decided it's not important. I just want to make a strong fiction tale and that's it. Which is kind of par for the course if you guys have read Bachman's Running Man. Bachman, of course, King says that Running Man is just pure fiction. He just really didn't care about anything else. He just wanted to make a really fast-moving plot. Maybe that Bachman channel, that current, was running through Blaze because he doesn't seem to linger where he needs to linger. I think it's incredibly appropriate and more powerful if you envision the setting of Blaze to take place in the 1950s, especially his youth. At the end of this story, based on Blaze's assumed age, we're probably late 60s, maybe early 70s, so there are too many instances where timelines and modern technology or lack thereof need to make an appearance and King glazes over that with this story. He just decides, oh, I'm not gonna, we're just gonna keep it floating. I don't wanna have a definite timeline. We're just going to leave it off the table and focus on the plot. Okay, I think the story's a little weaker because of that. I was yearning, 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 yearning to know when I was. I imagined it in the 50s and I loved the story when I had it in a 50s mind frame. I really did. I feel that that was his original intention and that intention, even though he might have felt like, oh, it'll be super easy to just edit out the year. It's not though, because the way you're describing how modern day life occurs, it's governed by time periods. The way we talk to each other, how we purchase goods, how we travel, like all of that is predicated on what year we're in. So I think, guys, he kind of made a misstep there by just leaving it floating in the ether. If he would have said it was 1958 rural Maine, I would have loved that, guys. I would have, Blaze was 13. Okay, cool. This was a post-World War II story. This is New England in that time period. I'm ready to go in my imagination. I'm envisioning the clothes, the cars, the way some of George Rackley's cons at the high-priced hotels, what they were wearing. All of a sudden, my imagination is more vivid because of that time period. And King just decided, I'm just going to chop it. So that's going to be a no for me, Bachman. I really wish that there would have been greater attention placed. Just make it a World War II. Just make it a 50s novel, period just make it a 50s novel. Like, what was the problem with that? I'm really perplexed. I'm really perplexed as to why he didn't do that. Think about it, guys. This is a short one. I would love for you guys to read Blaze and let me know what your imagination puts forth. Are you seeing this in the modern day? Or are you like myself who just went right to the 50s and kept it there and the story was the stronger for it? Especially regarding that scene when Blaze buys out the baby store. It totally works in the 1950s where all of that crap might have cost him. In modern day, he would have been out like 10 Gs or more based on what he bought, based on the descriptions. Really interesting stuff. So that's my one 
big pet peeve with Blaze. I really wish King just would have followed his original plan, his original instinct to go with a post-World War II story. So let me know what you guys think. My last criticism for Blaze, of course, is shifting POV. As I mentioned, we do have a third-person omniscient narrator throughout this text, but it's mostly focused on Blaze, right? We really just hear from Blaze, a little bit of George thrown in. It's Blaze's story from that omniscient, all-knowing narrator. What I did not like, though, is toward the latter half of the story, King gives the POV to the police detectives that are hunting Blaze down. Suddenly, we're with these guys named Sterling and Taylor, I think, and they're detectives and they're hunting down clues. And it's like, I don't care. I want to see Blaze escape you guys. I don't necessarily want to know what you had for breakfast this morning, what you're drinking inside your coffee mug other than coffee. I just wanted to be with Blaze. This is a short tale. I wanted all my focus on him. And I think he could have done a lighter hand, a lighter touch with describing the police were after him. We could have had a single paragraph saying there were three detectives who were hot on Blaze's trail because of said mistake he made, XYZ. That would have been fine. But we lose a lot of time at the end learning about these two detectives I don't care about. They're really late to the party. I don't really... I I have a problem with that sometimes. If you guys have heard my drawing of the three coverage, that was a complaint I had with drawing of the three. King gives the spotlight to random people in the cities of New York. Suddenly we're in the POV of the cashier or some lady on the bus or some lady on the plane observing Eddie and Roland. And I'm like, I don't care about you. I don't. Let's go back to our people. He does that a little too much for me in drawing of the three. I don't care about these cops. I don't. We know that they're onto him, but we don't really need to spend that much time looking at the world through their eyes. I want to be with Blaze and Joe and on their journey to escape. So it's lost, wasted time, I think, spending time with these detectives. And I just feel it was too long of a POV switch and I didn't appreciate it. This is a short novel. I wanted to be with Blaze. So let me know what you guys think if you are giving Blaze a reread or a first time read when you get to that section in the latter half. Is it something that just rolls off your back and you don't really think anything of it? Or are you like me and it's a little bit of a pebble in your shoe? We have reached the end of our Blaze coverage, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope we went deep enough. This is one that I definitely think I would give a lot of time before I do a reread just because it makes me sad. I didn't cry. I didn't even get close to crying this time, but my heart was heavy. Blaze is a sweet character who had really no positive things last very long in his life. His purpose is to make us feel sad, to have that cathartic experience, to cry it out, to feel like trash, to maybe look at the world differently, all that good stuff. It's hard though, it's hard to spend time with a character like Blaze where you see all the tragedy that befell him and how he was powerless against it. But overall, I really enjoyed it. I think this might be my favorite Bachman thus far, guys. Granted, I haven't finished them all. I think Roadwork will pop up in 2023. I'm eager to take a look at that one. But of the Bachmans we've read thus far, The Long Walk, The Running Man, is that it? That might be about it. 
This one is sweet and good and enjoyable, and it didn't hit me with those sort of more graphic Bachman moments where King writes like the devil may care. He doesn't care who's reading it. He's going to say what he's going to say. He's going to offend who he's going to offend, and he doesn't care. He's just writing like he has $400 million, which of course he does. I think it's much more than that now. They say with money like that, it's called F you money. You know, it just is. I think that King channeling Bachman, at least in the previous texts I've read, has like F you reader. That's F you writing. That's what he's doing. Absolutely. He's writing with both middle fingers up, everybody. And it's kind of great. It really kind of is, even though it is offensive and kind of hard to digest as you're participating with the text. It is still an experience. It really is. This might be my favorite Bachman. However, the jury's still out. I think we have a few more down the road. We have Thinner. I think we have, is it The Regulators or Desperation? I think it's The Regulators. Forgive me, everyone, if I'm screwing that up. We've got Roadwork. We have Rage, which I don't plan on reading anytime soon. We'll save that for the very end, but I will read it. I promise I will give it a gander academically. We're gonna, ugh, we'll have our battle armor on for Rage down the road when that happens. But this one is a delight, and if anybody is in the mood to read some Dickens and feel that warm-hearted sentiment. I think Blaze is kind of perfect for the holiday season if you want to feel the pain, which some people this time of year is extremely introspective, and it's a chance for us to tap in and cry it out, feel bad, and maybe, I don't know, it's kind of like a lot of us what we did in 2020 by reading horrific bio-terror books, you know, when things are bad, sometimes reading something sad or terrible that's much worse than your reality is strangely comforting. I mean, that's why we all like true crime, right? If we can get comfortable with the worst possible things imaginable, then life isn't so bad, you know? That's my five cents nobody asked for. Let's conclude this episode. I am Kim C. It is so great to be with all of you, and thank you so very much for spending some time with me and the novel Blaze. You guys can find me on Audible, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any podcast outlet that's your favorite, but if you would like to review the show, feel free to head to Audible now. We're on there. So if you are a member, you can type in the title of the show and let us know what you think. A five star is highly recommended, of course, but I'll let your heart do the deciding. We have one more episode before the end of 2022, and that will be our best of Underrated King 2022. It is swiftly coming up. I am jotting down notes right now. But for now, please head to Audible to rate and review the show. And if you haven't yet done so, please head to UnderratedSK at Gmail and let me know what you think. Feel free to chat about any of these past episodes. If you want to talk about Blaze, you are more than welcome to. I will write you back swiftly. I am always grateful reading papers, and checking emails, so I will be in touch as soon as possible. I hope everyone's having a delightful holiday season thus far, and may this episode find you well. I will see you soon with our final episode of 2022, The Best of Underrated King. Until then, take care, and bye-bye.